In the past uh, couple of weeks, for those who've come on these Monday nights, talked about uh, a couple of new talks, one on a little bit on the psychology of meditation, and then last week, because it was the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King, talked some about the teachings of Martin Luther King and how they fit together with the understandings of Buddhist um, practice. And following from those this week is a talk some of you might have heard in the past, but it seems to fit. And it begins, if you will, with a question for us, uh, especially in the times that we live, a society which has a perhaps can be characterized in part by the absence of the sacred, is how do we keep a sense of the sacred alive? In the last year of the life of the Buddha, um, as the story is told anyway, there's a famous text uh, that describes the last days, last year and last days of the Buddha. Um, And in this long story, which is a little bit like a myth, it even ends, and this is how it was in the old days, you know, it's kind of once upon a time type story. Um, at the last uh, day or two of the Buddha's life, when he was terribly sick, he lay down between two uh, sal trees, two beautiful trees, um, to prepare himself for death. And it was in this little village, and uh, his attendant, Ananda, was... Um, next to him and said to the Buddha, to the Blessed One, um, do not die here. You know, there are these great cities where you would be honored, such as Benares, where there are kings and queens and, you know, what you deserve, the, the greatness of your teaching will then be um, celebrated in the proper way. Do not die in this crude daub and waddle village. That's, of course, an anthropological term for your basic mud-floored huts and so forth. Um, And the Buddha looks back at Ananda in this story and says that, you don't understand, Ananda, this place where now there's a great stupa that was made over the site of the Buddha's um, uh, parinirvana, or his death, Uh, This place was the center of a great kingdom long before you were born, a kingdom of the great Mahasudasana, who was the king and his majestic queen who ruled. And from here there were roads that went in all eight directions, filled with bullocks and carts, filled with merchants and artisans and artists, filled with travelers. Um, there was never a time when there wasn't the sound of horses and elephants and bells and musicians, and this was the great court and the kingdom of justice and abundance that was run by this um, majestic king and his queen. Um, and so it seems to you to be just a impoverished village, but this is, a, in fact, the place of a great kingdom. So when you read old stories, such as this one, or when I do anyway, it's helpful to look at them a little bit mythologically instead of saying, well, is he speaking historically? There is a different kind of language, um, but it's a symbolic language. And what he was saying, to me anyway, in another language, is that wherever you are, the 
the poorest village, the most um, humble circumstances, is the center of the world and is a great kingdom if you recognize it for what it really is. If you pay attention and give respect to the environment and surroundings you are, it becomes what is called the kingdom of righteousness. And you are the queen or the king who can dispense justice and see the abundance of the world and care for those around you. And this is, the, this is the, almost the last image in the teachings of the Buddha, that the sacred is to be found not in some special place like Benares or Tibet, but where we are. The path doesn't go from here to there. The path goes from there to here. So then the question goes on, how do we keep this sense of the sacred kingdom alive? Um, also, as part of this last text, someone asks the Buddha's advice for sustaining the holy life. And he said, as long as the followers of the way hold regular gatherings and meet in harmony and respect, come and go with harmony and respect, as long as they respect the ancient wisdom and respect the elders of their community, and respect and care for the vulnerable among them, the children, the women, and respect and care for the forest and streams and shrines. If they do so, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. And so there's a quality of respect that is central to the last teachings of the Buddha in keeping the sense of sacred alive for us as human beings. And one knows it if you go into a great forest monastery, as I practiced and lived in, in uh, Thailand, you enter through the gates and there are these old giant teak trees and well-swept paths underneath the um, forest canopy and little huts of the monks and nuns. And there's a sense of such care and beauty in the simplest way of respect for the forest and the animals and those who come in. Um, even the littlest one, even the little ants are respected. You step over them and you sweep them out of the way and every form of life is respected. Like that little poem I read sometimes from Lloyd Reynolds, a bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. <laughs> this is for the authors in the audience here, right? And you feel that. You go into the monastery and everything is respected. Um, even, if you read in the text, even Mara, who was the um, personification in Indian mythology of struggle, of difficulty, of evil, of whatever language one wants to use, it, use for it, the, the personification of all the um, forces of greed and hatred and ignorance, and Thich Nhat Hanh likes to tell this story, he's written it in a beautiful way, of how one day the Buddha was resting um, in a cave in the mountainside, his attendant Ananda was outside, and Mara came to call upon the Buddha, as he did periodically in these stories. You know Mara, don't you? <laughs> Mara comes to call on you all the time. I know he does, <laughs> right? And Ananda says to Mara, um, he's not here, he's busy, he's engaged. And Ananda doesn't want the Buddha to have to deal with Mara. Kind of trying to protect him, but also a little bit 
frightened of Mara. And then from inside the cave, the Blessed One says, Ananda, is that someone who's come? Ananda goes, oh dear, he heard me. Ananda, is that my good friend Mara? Please set out the table. I would like to invite him in for tea. And so the Buddha invites Mara in for tea in this very respectful way and says, how are you doing, Mara? Mara said, it's really tough being the evil one, you know. It's not such an easy job and complains for a while. And the Buddha says, you know, it's not all that easy being a Buddha either, quite frankly. <laughs> and they have their tea and then separate. So in these stories, there is at the heart of them um, the phrase from uh, Rumi in his poem, The Guest House, treat each guest honorably. Treat what your life brings to you with a sense of respect. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember your own nobility and treat others in this way. So a story for you that's um, a, a fantastic old uh, myth um, and that fits with this theme. Some of you may know it. Once upon a time, again, when you were somewhat younger than you are now, uh, King Arthur in his kingdom was out on his great horse, um, roaming through the forests and countryside, partly on a hunt and partly just to see the farthest reaches of his kingdom. And there was a great stag with 12 or 14 points, one of the magical beings of the forest that he saw. And he took af off after the stag for a long distance into this great and dark forest toward the end of the day and went deeper and deeper into the forest and finally got lost and couldn't find his way out. And a great thirst came upon him and it was getting darker and darker and he realized he could not get out of that forest at night and he would have to stay there, and he was terribly thirsty. And as he was looking for a place where he could lie down under the trees until the morning, he came upon a small clearing just as the moon was coming out, and in the midst of this clearing was an exquisite well. King Arthur dismounted his horse, and having great th thirst, walked up to this beautiful well, which had a bucket made of woven of silver and gold. He thought, this is a very special well indeed, and lowered the bucket into the water, thinking I'm a king, of course. Rolled it, brought it back up, and drank of the well. And sat down feeling a bit more satisfied, but concerned whether he would find his way out of the forest. And all of a sudden, he heard in the dark the, the sound of horses' hoofs coming through the forest. You know, all right, we'll do this. I think about telling stories to my daughter when she was a child, you know, it's so great. And so Arthur's perks up, who's coming, you know, and in the moonlight, coming into the clearing, he sees one of the most magnificent horses he's ever seen, and seated on it, he can tell from the long, um, golden hair and the robe that is around her, um, which is woven of silver and the uh, amazing work and the saddle and bridle. He can't quite tell who it is, but some magnificent woman is coming up on this horse. Um, and he can't wait. And she turns around, dismounts from the horse and looks at him. And she is um, this old hag with 
all the distorted features that you imagine from witches and hags and so forth. But she's not just any old hag, and lest the ladies in the crowd here, the women, take offense. This is, her name in the Irish mythology is the Hag of Bera, um, but she's known all around the world. The Russians call her Baba Yaga, and the Indians call her Kali. And she is the one who stirs the great pot in the center of the world and creates all things and then brings them back to her. So she is actually the source of life. And she can appear in any form, but in this particular story, she comes as the hag of Bera. And he looks at her, magnificently dressed, but looking like this. And she looks right back at him and says, uh, you have drank from my sacred well without permission. And he feels a little chagrined. And she looks at him and she says, and also you are lost. And he says, yes, madam, I am lost. can't find my way out. And she says, well, you have done this to me. You've drunk from my sacred well. And the king looks at her and says, my apologies, madam. If there is anything in my power as a king that I can do to uh, please you, to make up for this, water that I've taken, and perhaps to seek your guidance in getting out of the forest, I will do so. And she looks back at him and says, granted, yes, king, I will accept your offer. What I would like, she said, is to wed the greatest of your knights. Is not Sir Gawain, who was at that time the greatest knight in the court, is he not yet unmarried? And uh, Arthur said, that's so. She said, well, since you said you would give me every, anything in your power and you are the king, um, I would take him for a husband. Thank you. And then tomorrow I will show you the way out of the forest and we'll call it even. <laughs> king Arthur sat there for a while, thinking how he was going to break the news to Sir Gawain, <laughs> and then looked back at her and said, Oh, great lady, for there was no doubt that there was greatness about her. I'm not sure that uh, Sir Gawain is worthy of a woman of your greatness. <laughs> she said, No, 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 I will ex uh, this is exactly what I, you offered as a king. I accepted, took you at your word. And then he looked and he said, Tell me, is there nothing else I can do to release me, to release myself and Sir Gawain from this promise, for I'm not sure that it is the right thing. And she said, I will think upon it and we will talk in the morning. And she rode off and came back in the morning. <coughs> and there she was. And she said, I'm ready to lead you out of this forest. Um, and he said, well, is there nothing else I can do to release, be released from this promise? She said, well, there's perhaps one thing you could do. If you can answer a question for me and answer it properly and truly, uh, then I will release you. And you will have uh, a bit of time to answer it. I would see you back here in this spot in one year. And if you bring me the answer, you are released. And if not, then I will wed the knight. And the question is, what do women want. <laughs>
what do women really want? So Arthur goes back, as you can imagine, to the castle and gathers the knights around and tells them of this magical and amazing encounter he's had in the depths of the forest. And the knights say, okay, we got to get on this, right? <laughs> and they all get scribes and great books. And they go out in every direction in the kingdom and they start interviewing women. What is it that you want? It's not a bad project, mind you, right? And they start making lists. Love, they want love. Or they want to be left alone, right? Or they want gold or children or power or pleasure or you name it, all kinds of possibilities. And so they have book after book, and they compile them all together at the end of the year and say, surely we have the answer. And Arthur rides together with a man on a great horse to carry the books back into the forest. And sure enough, as he waits by the well, uprides this magnificent steed and the, the old woman. She takes the books, looks through them, shakes her head at each page, and says, I'm sorry, you have not found the answer. So I will wed Sir Gawain next week. And Arthur said, are you certain? She said, I am absolutely certain. He says, well, then I've spoken with Gawain, and we will have a small private ceremony in the chapel. And she says, small private ceremony? Why, this is the greatest night in the kingdom. You must invite everyone. Sir, you are the king. You must do this properly. So they go back, and all the preparations are made, and there is this huge wedding and banquet and so forth, and there stands Sir Gawain, and here stands the lady, as she is called, the great lady. And finally, they are pronounced husband and wife. They have a feast, a toast, and then they go off to the bridal chamber. And uh, Sir Gawain sits down on the bed, and uh, the lady sits down next to him and says, I will prepare myself to go to sleep. Will you join me? And Sir Gawain says, perhaps I will sit up. <laughs> and the lady looks at him and says, I thought you were a brave knight, but I see that perhaps I was wrong. What else could she have said? What worse could she have said to him? She said, will you not kiss the bride? And he drew back a little and she said, bravery? <laughs> So he took a deep breath and leaned over and gave her a kiss. And the moment he did so, in that instant she changed form and became the most beautiful princess that he had ever encountered. The long golden hair was still there, but all the rest of the features of this woman as the hag of Bera had been transformed in a moment to this beautiful state. And she smiled at him and kissed him back again, and indeed there was a great joy between them. <laughs> and then she said, but there is still a problem, my great knight. She said, for 
I have been cast upon have been cast upon me a great spell. And it is only by your kiss that it has been broken. However, she said, now you must choose, for I can be this way in the nighttime for you, and then in the daytime I will return to my loathly form, was the word she used. Or if you choose, I can be beautiful for you in the daytime as we travel about, and at night I will resume this form of the hag. Which will you pick? So, poor Gawain, he already had a tough day. (laughs) And now this. I mean, things were looking up, it's true. And he went back and forth. I mean, you know, what would you say? What would you choose? And finally he sat and he gazed upon her and his heart melted. And he looked at her not from the question of what would I choose, but from his heart he saw her and said, what would be the blessing for her? And looked at her again and said, I cannot choose, milady. I will allow you to choose. And in that moment, a great smile came across her and she said, you have broken the spell. For by allowing me to choose now, I can be beautiful both in the daytime and at night, for you have answered the question of what it is that women really want. And what it is that women really want, said this great being, the, the, the woman who carries all the possibilities of the world. What it is that women really want, she said, in her language, is their sovereignty. And sovereignty is an ancient word that means their respect, their wholeness, their independence, their fullness of being, not beholden to someone else, but allowed the respect to be and blossom who they are as they are. The, the greatest of blessings, their, their genuine freedom. And of course, as such stories go, Sir Gawain and his bride lived happily ever after. <laughs> so we are invited in the process of meditation and spiritual life to awaken our own Buddha nature, to awaken the queen or the king of the realm, to awaken our own sovereignty, and to bless or respect the sovereignty in the beings in each other person that we meet. In fact, at the end of most Buddhist texts, after these dialogues, they're really descriptions of people coming and talking to the Buddha and what happened, and kind of an account of the teachings. And as people leave the presence of the Buddha, the very last words that he says to them as they depart is, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. He gives them teachings. The people ask questions. How can I live a wise life? How do I develop compassion? What does freedom mean? And they have this dialogue and get these beautiful teachings. And then the Buddha doesn't say, now you should go and do A, B, and C. 
the Buddha looks at them, blesses them, and said, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. He again bows to their sovereignty. He offers respect to their own dignity, to who they are. And to be awake, to discover the awakened heart, to awaken our Buddha nature, is to see with this quality of respect every being, to offer it to life. From Thich Nhat Hanh, who um, writes, see where we are here. Speaking of walking meditation, place your foot on the surface of the earth the way an emperor or empress would place their seal on a royal decree. A royal decree can bring happiness or misery to people. It can shower grace on them or it can ruin their lives. Your steps can do the same. If your steps are peaceful, dignified, awake, the world will have that peace. And if you can take one peaceful step, you can take two, and then you can take hundreds and bring this peace and dignity and respect wherever you go. And it happens, speaking of Thich Nhat Hanh, that he is currently in Vietnam. He um, has not been allowed to go back for, I think it's been 39 years. And now at age 78, he was finally allowed by the government of Vietnam to go for a three-month visit and offer teachings throughout Vietnam. I talked to someone in Hanoi a few days ago who was with him, and he's traveling through the countryside offering teachings of respect um, throughout north, central, and south, southern parts of Vietnam. And apparently it's a really heartwarming and amazing um, tour for all those who are part of his visit, and a very healing thing for the country of Vietnam. So to be awake is with each step or with each encounter to respect the sovereignty of those in front of us in a way to bow to what is in this world. And again, Edo Roshi, Zen master, someone asks him how the Buddhists answer questions about the existence of Buddha. Does Buddha really exist or God for that matter? He said, the other day I was walking along the river and the wind was blowing and suddenly I thought, oh, the air really exists. We know the air is there, but until the wind blows against our face, we're not aware of it. And here in the wind, I was suddenly aware, yes, the air is here. And the sun too, I was suddenly aware of the sun shining through the trees, its warmth, its brightness, all this completely free, completely gratuitous, simply here for us to enjoy. And without my knowing it, spontaneously my hands came together and I realized I was making a bow. And it occurred to me that the answer to the question is just this, that we can bow, that we can take a deep bow to what exists. So we come and we sit in meditation and the invitation is to take this seat like a Buddha, like the king or queen on the throne, and to bow to what is, to offer the respect of our heart to 
those around us, to the world around us, to the animals and trees and forests and the human beings, as Elizabeth Barrett Browning writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, every common brush afire, every common bush afire. To see with the eyes that see the sacred and to bow to whatever is in front of us, because it's all part of this great magic show of life, to bow even to the terrible things, to bow to the war in Iraq, and to bow to the nuclear arms race, which is still happening in this world. And, and because unless we acknowledge the way things are, we can't respond to them. We actually have to see the truth, the way things are. And once we have seen this is the way things are, we can then find some wise relationship to it. Whether it is your parents or your children, your employer, your employees, your lovers, your spouse, until you can see this is the way they are, there can be no wise relationship. So the first step is this bow of sovereignty, even to the terrible things of the world. And in teaching the practice of mindfulness, we are learning in this quality of awareness to make space in the heart and mind for the way things are with respect. There is rest in it. There is immense freedom, dignity, compassion, all arise from the space of mindfulness. Says the Buddha, it is a great blessing to listen to what is, to learn what is so. And we do it in all these different ways. We work with the breath. And one teacher of mine said, you should be aware of your breath as if each breath were your first breath as a young baby, or as if each breath were your dying breath. You would pay attention to it. And you know, people feel their breath. That same teacher said, I'd like you to tell me something new about your breath every day that you come in to see me for an interview. And this was a long training period, so I probably went to see that teacher 50 times. And each day I had to find some other new experience to describe about the breath. I became really respectful of aware of all the ways that we breathe with the world, that our body is constantly expanding in contraction and taking the world into us and moving it out all the time. Now, sometimes you pay attention to your breath and it becomes the mirror and you can't breathe very well. Sometimes you feel the breath and your joy comes. Sometimes your breath, you feel your breath and your anxiety is present. It becomes a mirror to feel anything with respect shows everything else. There was a person who came on a retreat, came in an interview and said after some days that they just couldn't be aware of their breath. Every time they tried to feel it, it was like water on a skillet. They'd put their attention on it and it would just drop away, run away. Um, and they tried so hard and they were struggling. And I said, well, there are a lot of other ways. You can meditate on sound, meditate on your body sitting here. But before you do that, let's get curious. Let's give some respect to the fact that it's so difficult wonder why it's so difficult. So close your eyes and we'll just meditate together and feel your breath. 
and he began to feel his breath for a moment. And he said, I can't do it. He started to get really anxious and tight. As soon as I feel it, I get really afraid. I said, did you know that? He said, well, I knew it was sort of under there, but now he could really feel it. And I said, well, let yourself be afraid, as if you do bow to that and feel the fear. You could name it fear, fear, difficulty, feel like I'm dying, all this stuff coming, dying, dying. Okay, bow to that. Just let's see what happens. So there he is shaking and dying and so forth. And I'm, of course, for me, it's easy. I'm just saying pay attention to it, right? <laughs> dying, dying. And he's shaking. And I said, um, do you have any sense of what this connected to? And he said, no. I said, well, as you feel it in your body, feel the vibrating and the tingling and the, the t anxiety and all that, let an old memory come that might be connected, just something. And all of a sudden, his whole face changed. And he said, kittens. I said, kittens. And he said, yeah. He shook his head and he closed his eyes again and then opened them. I said, so tell me the story. And he lived in Ohio in a little town. His dad was the dentist, actually. And um, this is an older man, so I guess this was probably in the 30s. And when he was growing up, they had a bunch of animals. and. If there were too many litters of kittens or puppies, the farmers around would just drown them generally when there were too many. Um, but their cat had a, this big litter of kittens and no one would take them. So he said, my dad, I was there, I was seven years old or six years old or something, took his bottle of ether and put it over the, each of the kittens. Um, and then we buried them and I had to watch this. Okay. He said, and then a few weeks later, um, they told me that I needed to have my tonsils out. And my dad took me over, he was the dentist, he took me over to his friend who was the doctor to his office and they lay me down there, six, seven years old. And after they kind of lay me down, strapped me down a little bit, then they brought out the bottle of ether and took the ether out, you know, to anesthetize me. He said, and I struggled and then of course I went out and my tonsils were out. And he told me this whole story, he was still shaking. And I said, how do you feel? He said, I'm so frightened. And I said, now feel your breath. He said, oh, I can breathe a little bit more. And all that was just held inside him. Do you understand this? For, I don't know, 60 years. And so the idea wasn't, oh, I can't feel my breath. You're not a good meditator, you know, do it right, judge it. But to bow to it and say, oh, this is interesting, to pay respect to your experience, to the sorrows and joys, to the struggles and beauty. The quality of attention in meditation is one that allows things to teach us, to rest with this field of respect, whether it's the breath or whether it's the body, which was also teaching him. The body wants to teach you. Remember John Ciardi who says, an ulcer is an unkissed imagination taking its revenge for having been jilted. It's an undanced dance, an unpainted watercolor, an unwritten poem. So one form of respect is respect for our own body, for the miracle of life within us as a body. That you get this body. I mean, how did you get it? And here you are in this weird thing, right? It is. You know it's weird. <laughs> and then respect for feelings, for
for all the kinds of feelings, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. As the Lakota Indians have a, a, a very deep respect for the feelings of grief that we've lost in our culture. We're a culture that has forgotten how to grieve. And as one of my shaman friends, Maladoma Somme, says, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead, full of so many people that have not been grieved. Whereas for the Lakota Sioux, someone who was grieving was considered most wakan, most holy. And people would go to someone who was grieving and say, pray for me, because they were considered, the grieving ones were considered to be closest to the Great Spirit. So we need to pay respect to our grief and our tears and our longing and our loneliness and to our joys and happiness and love. Some people don't respect that, don't respect the, the beauty of life that we've been given. To our bodies, our feelings, to our mind. One of my teachers describe modern society. He said, I want to describe modern society in three words. Lost in thought. <laughs> That's modern life as I've observed it. He would go from the forest into Bangkok and watch these people walking around the streets. Say, lost in thought. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even the most loving father or mother. And so we bring the same respect to our body, to our feelings, to the mind, to all the stories it tells, to all the beliefs and views and opinions, not just lost in them, but the respect of attention. And to the patterns of the Dharma, the life, that lives through this body and mind, all of it, this great dance. We become the gracious innkeeper, the guest house, as Rumi says, treat each guest honorably. The goal of community is to create a safe place, safe because no one is attempting to heal or convert you, to fix you or change you. The members accept you as you are. You are free to be you. And being so free, you are free to discard defenses and masks and disguises, free to discover the true psychological and spiritual health of yourself and the world, free to let your beauty shine. And the goal of meditation in the inner community of body and mind and the community with one another is to offer this kind of respect. I love the poetry of Zen master Ryokan because sometimes he writes about this, you know, the spring plum blossoms and playing with the children. And then in alternate poems, he writes, looking up, I see the setting sun Unbearable loneliness, sparse rain, quietly I clutch my robe and lean against the empty window. And it's as if he bows to all the seasons of life, to spring and autumn and to winter. For more than 70 years I've been making myself dizzy observing men and women. 
I've abandoned trying to penetrate whether men and women's actions are good or bad. Can you imagine that? All this coming and going is a sign of misunderstanding and weakness. The world is as it is. The future, the great way, if a visitor brings such questions, I have only the ease of the hermitage to offer in reply. We are so trained to do and fix and take charge of and take care of and make things be a certain way, as if we really were in charge. The Buddha said, this land is mine, these children are mine. These are words of folly from a man who does not know that even his body, even he is not his. And in meditation, we let go of the small sense of self, the possessing and judging and controlling what's called the body of fear, and return to what we know to be gracious and beautiful. We all know this. We know this inner nobility as surely as we know our own name. And we lose it. You know, we forget who we are and think we're the person, you know, the person running around checking off things on our to-do list, right? That's who you are. That's not who you are. You weren't born to do that. I mean, yeah, you do that. That's your hobby, right? But it's not. So here's a poem someone who forgot the small self called Hazel tells Laverne last night I'm cleaning out my Howard Johnson's ladies room when all of a sudden up pops this frog must have come from the sewer swimming around and trying to climb up the sides of the bowl so I goes to flush him down but so help me God he starts talking about a golden ball and how I can be a princess me a princess while my mouth drops all the way to the floor. And he says, kiss me, just kiss me once on the nose. Well, I screams, you little green pervert. And I hits him with my mop and I has to flush the toilet three times before he goes down, me, a princess. (laughs) It's painful, isn't it? Hmm? But it's not too far away from actually how it is. Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, you know? Princess, prince, nobility. And yet, in a moment of respect, you know it, you offer it to someone, you receive it, and this sense of nobility arises. When we let go of our agenda, when we can kiss you-know-who, right? Kiss the hag. When we let go of the way it's supposed to be and bow to the way that it is, bow to whoever comes. Again, a story. Here was the victorious army that might rape its way to the center of the city. In the face of these expectations, my father had closed the door to our house, but didn't lock it. With his wife, daughter, family, and guests in the cellar, he waited upstairs, no doubt, in prayer. When the soldiers approached and pounded against the door with their guns, Father opened it and stood before them in a way they couldn't have expected. He pushed aside their rifles and gestured that they should come in as if they were invited guests to a banquet. Of course, a soldier's attitude at such a moment is one of great suspicion. He's seen six years of war and wants to survive. He's ready to shoot before he gets shot. But they saw in my father's gesture that perhaps their fear was not necessary. 
They looked in the house to see if it was a trap and found it wasn't. My father could see they were relieved. They took off their rifles, and then my father called all the others up from the basement. He was able to create such an atmosphere of welcoming and trust and respect that the soldiers were moved to share from their own meager rations. They could see how thin and hungry we were and frightened, for the city had been cut off for a long time, and they shared with our family and stayed for some days as guests with their own food. Something happens when we offer respect to our bodies, to our hearts and feelings, to the stories, the fears, and the longings, and the love, and the understanding, all the parts of the mind. When we can listen with this level of respect, it begins to transform us, and it begins to transform others when we offer it. Again, as Martin Luther King said, speaking of him so much last week, the approach of respect and love does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. And when finally it reaches the opponent, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. We who would make peace in this world with all its sorrows and struggles and poverty and war and racism that we see so visibly cannot make peace without this respect, without this quality of care. It's not them, it's us. As Solzhenitsyn writes, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to round them up and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So my friends who've been involved for years in the Compassionate Listening Project have gone to the places around the world that, which have the most isolated leadership. They went to Libya and listened to Muammar Gaddafi when no one else in North America and most of Europe wouldn't speak to him. They went to Lebanon to listen to all sides in the Civil War. They went to Bosnia and Armenia and all these places, and their work was to sit down and say, tell me what it is like for you. To offer the respect of the sovereignty of every being. Now this sounds really kind of grandiose. Try it in your family. Try it with your kids, you know, your lovers. Because there's a there's, a, there's just a moment somebody, you know, does something and you're a little bit annoyed with her or him or, I mean, I, you know how that happens. I do anyway, you know. And I can feel in my own marriage, my wife does something or whatever or ha doesn't do something and I'm getting, it's, this isn't right and we've talked about this and whatever, you know, or she's upset or I am, you know, and I can look at her and I can say, what did you mean? And depending on the tone of voice, 
what did you mean can kind of be a little like, okay, let's have a fight, right? <laughs> and she'll get up for it, right? And we'll just do it. <laughs> or instead of being defensive, which is really what that is, you know, I'm kind of defending my territory. What did you mean by that? I can look at her and I say, what did you mean? I didn't understand with uh, wanting to listen with a respect. What's going on for you? And in the moment of saying, in whatever language you say it, I want to understand you. What is going on? What is happening for you? The whole thing turns around. The same three words, what did you mean, can be said in completely different ways. How we treat one another. I mean, even dogs. A man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he told the stuff was good for dogs. Every day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force its jaw open, and pour the liquid down its throat. One day the dog broke loose and spilled the oil all over the floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the spoon. That's when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the oil but his method of administration. (laughs) There is no one who doesn't long for respect, who doesn't love respect. The elderly, the young, teens, right? People who are angry or sad, the environment, the disenfranchised, the rich, the Croats and the Serbs and the Bosnians, and the Muslims, and the Hindus, and the animists, and black people, and brown people, and yellow people, and red people, and pink people. You know who you are, right? (laughs) Milton Erickson, the great hypnotherapist and um, innovator, used to offer this kind of respect to people. And there's one story in which he went back in the 50s into a mental hospital to kind of show his work um, and was invited to a ward where there was a man who they had tried to talk out of his delusion that he was Jesus for a long time and therapy and things. Nothing worked. His psychosis was that he, you know, believed he was Jesus and no one, you know, could tell him any different. And there he was on the ward and wouldn't do anything, wouldn't really accept in that way. And, Milton Erickson went up to him and looked at him and said, I hear you're a carpenter. And the man said, oh yes, as a matter of fact. He said, fine, we have a shop here and we really need some things done. And simply bowing to him, okay, you're Jesus, well, we have some things for you to do, (laughs) began the kind of dialogue that couldn't happen in any other way. Not expectations, not plans, not fixing somebody, but listening with the heart. This too. A story. Heavens, all these stories. Where do I go? Ah, i just take a pause here for a moment. Yeah, a different story. 
This is a story. I remember I was on the on Michael Krasny on um, KPFA one day doing call and show, and somebody phoned in and said, um, "I'm a police officer, um, and I'm also a Buddhist. Is that okay?" You know. <laughs> And I said, is that okay? That's fabulous. I wish we had a lot more like you. He said, I carry a gun, but I try not to be, you know, harmful to people. I'm really doing this. So anyway, this is a story of a police officer like that. He said, I'm interested in not being a part of the problem. I'm interested in being part of the solution. And I really believe with my heart that this is possible, even when it gets to conflict. I'll tell you a story, says this cop. I'd arrested a very angry guy who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to the paddy wagon, he spit in my face. That was something. And he went after me with a chair. Well, we cuffed him and put him in the truck. And on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things. And again, I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers. When I got to the station, I was moved spontaneously to say, look, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. <laughs> the next day I had to take him from where he'd been housed overnight to the criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. And we got to that spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly, and so did I. And then he said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. And I just felt this moment of connection. And it turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of really bad prisons and had troubles with the guards there. And I guess I symbolized something for him. And I saw it all turn around, saw a kind of healing, I believe, in that moment. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not the vision of our true nature really has power? Maybe people will say you're taking chances, but if you're taking chances without any love, you're really taking a chance. So respect. Respect for ourselves, respect for one another. Stepping out of the body of fear, the small sense of self, and opening ourselves to this life that we've been given. And it's not just in these great things. You know, I'm reading all these kind of special stories. As Meher Baba says, the scope of care and respect is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their respect and love in little things. A word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also respect and service, although there may be no thought of serving in it. When taken by themselves, all these things may seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. So it's not just the big things. But the whole practice of awakening, all the teachings of liberation, the teachings of dana, which is of a generous heart, the teachings of non-harming, of sila, of not bringing harm to other beings, the teachings of selflessness, of wisdom, 
of compassion and interconnectedness. In some way, all of these could be taken as teachings of respect. Even the teachings of emptiness, because we really don't know where anything comes from. You know, it just troops out of emptiness and shows itself and disappears. Um, and it's so mysterious. I mean, somebody asked this Zen master, would you tell me what happens when I die? Or when you die? What happens when you die? And the Zen master looked back and said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean? Aren't you a Zen master? And he says, yes, but I'm not a dead one. Zen Master Sansanim spoke of cultivating don't-know mind, which is not the mind that knows, but rather the mind and heart that is open to the mystery of life that is before us, the mystery of our ages and colors and forms and communities, the mystery of the suffering of the world that needs to be met with respect, the mystery of the beauty and the love of the world that needs to be met with respect, not to fix but to listen, to bow to the sovereignty of life itself, to rest in compassion and openness and listening to this great life. And when we do, there comes freedom and ease and graciousness, and then we can care for things, and the things that we care for are really transformed by our love and our respect. Nothing else really will transform this world. The transformation requires this level of care and openness, the sovereignty that we grant. Don't be confused by surfaces, says Rilke. In the depths, everything becomes law, everything becomes the Dharma. When we become silent and still and can bow to what is, there opens in us a space of freedom, connectedness, joy, that is our birthright, that is who we really are. So mysterious. Little passage from Lewis Thomas to close. At home, 4 p.m. today, says the female moth, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol, a single molecule of which will rattle the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving upwind in a confusion of ardor. But it's doubtful if the male, as he is, has any awareness of being caught in this aerosol of chemical attraction. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly it's become an excellent day, the weather remarkably bracing, <laughs> The time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. And en route, traveling the gradient of Bombacol upwind, he notices the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. And then when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences, the greatest piece of luck. Why, bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) Mary Oliver's line, I was a bride married to amazement, 
just to be alive is such an amazing thing in this human form. And we can make suffering for one another without respect, and we can find the deepest connection, compassion, and freedom when we discover it. So let us sit. as you sit quietly a moment or two of reflection, what is true in your own life, in body, heart, mind, circumstance, that asks for your respect, acknowledgement that this is the way it is, that asks for your love, And what is true in this world around us? You know, the things that cause you the most pain to see the struggle against, the groups that you might say, them, the bad ones. (coughs) Can you offer your respect to them all? Doesn't mean you have to go along with injustice, but to rest in the dignity of your own nobility in the great heart of a Buddha. And from this you will know what to do and how to do it in the wisest way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.